0: Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Lutofsky.
1: And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg.
0: And we just couldn't pass up the opportunity for an Friday the 13th in October to talk about something we probably should have talked about ages ago, but haven't.
1: It's been a while since it's been quite as much on the top of our list, but there was a good run there in the last few years where we've really Been leaning on the Friday 13th franchise and watching a lot of them over and over and over again. And I spent a lot of time over the years being really into the Halloween series, more so than Friday 13th, although I've certainly seen all of them and watched them many times. But I would certainly have always said Halloween was my go to. But I think the Friday 13th series became our go to for quite a few years lately.
0: I think there's more to choose from tonally. In, yes, like, the range of the series for what we feel like putting on like, oh, yeah, really a horror movie we want to put on or like a a weird, like goofy romp horror. It's got that too, but then it's got sci fi and there's space technically if you want to go into space with it.
1: Now, we did do an episode where we talked about the remake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we're done with that. Oh, yes, <laughs> very much so.
0: We watched it once and that's all we need.
1: That's enough. Definitely have a lot of things, surely to say about all of the classic Friday the 13th stuff. And since this was the perfect opportunity, we also figured as we've been easing back into doing some ghouls in the house, there's no need to belabor the point and do like a massive episode of multiples when we can talk about the first, the greatest, uh, arguably in some respects. And the one that started really really is the one you can credit as starting the boom in the slasher genre the original friday the 13th from 1980 friday the 13th you may only see it once but that will be enough friday the 13th I don't think anybody needs an explanation about a bunch of counselors going to a camp in New Jersey and getting picked <laughs> off. But if anybody is unfamiliar or familiar with Friday the 13th in a more general way, it sometimes still comes as a shock to people when they find out that the first one is almost sort of more of a murder mystery with no Jason in sight and no hockey mask and uh, a very different killer.
0: I think that's also why I get drawn to it for putting on his background viewing a lot because anybody who's listened to our podcast for any length of time knows that I love scream and the scream series. And we talked about, you know, the whole run of the first four scream movies on our previous podcast on doctor of the dead. And to me, this feels, I mean, it obviously kind of is, a very specific precursor to movies like the Scream movies where you don't exactly know what's happening. They're trying to cast doubt on a few different characters. You don't know, you know, who's doing the killing, but someone's doing the killing and it feels very human and it is very human in the end. And that's something I really am drawn to as like a subgenre of horror like that murder mystery not necessarily supernatural plot
1: it is worth noting too that as a murder mystery which it really feels like this one is set up more to be because i didn't even really pay attention over the years i think it's more the case of i think the first time i saw this i probably already knew everything already probably so i couldn't come into this fresh i don't know when that was but obviously a long time ago in the 80s The movie seems to want you to wonder, like, is Crazy Ralph the one? Is the kid that kills the snake the one? Because this was the first time we ever watched it where I really got a sense of how long they linger on him after the snake scene. Which they want you to think, oh, he killed the snake. So does he? Is he a sociopath?
0: There's also some misdirection on Mr. Christie that maybe like he's the one based on some like car similarities. And I mean, we can get into the more granular details of it, but they really try to like sprinkle it around.
1: But I think one of the key things to note about the mystery side, though, is it's more a mystery for the audience, but not the people in the movie like you're talking about Scream and some others, there's a point in most of those films where everybody is aware that someone's being killed and what's going on and who is it. Mm-hmm. They don't really get a sense of that until basically the third act in this one. Yeah. And actually a lot of things don't even happen in this movie. That's another thing about this movie that's interesting is when you really sit and watch it intently, it's very uneventful for long stretches. It is not paced In the way that later slashers would be paced, and most of the real action and terror from the character's point of view only happens at the end of the movie, and we know something's going on and somebody's watching them, but there isn't a lot that actually happens. And so there's it's an interesting dynamic in comparison. And I mentioned that this is the one; it's it's definitely Friday the Thirteenth success that led to the boom in 80s slashers but it's the last in a series of films that established the beginnings of slashers yeah and the thing is that list is far longer than people correctly give credit for and even i now i'm forgetting a couple things i only just was telling you about like for instance you can say halloween you can say black christmas before that Then there's Peeping Tom and Psycho. And of course, Peeping Tom got a call out in one of the screams.
0: In four. You ask me which scream, I will tell you. It is four.
1: And, uh, (laughs) but there were just a couple others that I was only just reading an article about saying, oh, these never get proper credit. And I feel bad that I've now forgotten again what they are.
0: Well, especially because there's also international films to consider. And I think at least one or two of the films on the list we read recently were Mexican films.
1: Yeah. And it's fascinating still. How much of our perception of the history of all these things, the received wisdom, is so very culturally specific and Mm narrow-minded. And I'm trying to improve my uh, awareness of Mexican and Spanish horror, too, which I'm finding I enjoy more and more. But Friday the 13th can definitely be credited as the one that came at the end of that long run of slashers that began the craze. Because when this one hit, it was more or less when everyone turned around and said, we want one. And then suddenly in 81 in particular, it was just, there's a huge list.
0: One thing I will say too, because it's one of the things we talk about, like between the two of us sometimes is that lists kind of drive us crazy. Yeah. You know, like they're very arbitrary. They're very subjective. They're driven by the writer's perspective and their lived experiences. Sometimes they're driven by the outlet that they're writing for or they're driven by the sponsors of the article. And I come at this because this is my career track is, is marketing and paid content. And, you know, sometimes you don't realize what you're reading, you're reading it and something's included on a list because some promoter has paid to have a movie included because they're releasing a restored Blu-ray this week. And they want the list to be up in the week that it, is being released. So a lot of it is sort of like grain of salt when you read these lists. Now, obviously that's separate from say academic study where you're reading something that's more a history of the genre and talking about, okay, here are some of the precursors, the things that came before
1: arguably trying to be responsible to history, trying
0: to be responsible. And obviously things are going to get missed. And the way it goes a lot of times with media is there's a lot of things that only get like, quote unquote, discovered later, especially international films, because if they never had a release in the US market, or they never had a release in the European market, and maybe there's just like, apocryphal stories of having people remembering having seen something, you know, at a theater or at a drive in growing up, but there's no print that circulates. It's not until you find that print. And that's happening a lot more in the last 10, 15 years where they find a print and somebody is like, you know, people would really want to see this. And this actually does come before a lot of the things you think started something. And it's also possible for people to have the same idea at the same time in different places and not even know that someone's, you know, working on that. But I think that's kind of where we come from sometimes with lists is saying like, you don't have to say these are like the top or the best or whatever. But when we talk about things that came before, it's more so there is a through line you can follow and that through line doesn't represent everything that came before it.
1: I just have a lot of things that I wanted to say in response to different things you were just saying, (laughs) and I've been waiting to say them. So I'm hoping I remember all of them. One is that, I, too, had the same professional experience for years, of course, because in the early 2000s, I worked for a lot of magazines, both print and online. I used to talk about how much I hated doing the list stuff or contributing to lists. And, yes, there were occasions where I was like, well, make sure you get this one in there or also this is coming out this week. So we can't say anything bad, but we don't want to tell you to do just a good review, but also maybe just, you know, and that's always a part of it. Yeah, another thing I wanted to mention was you're talking about like someone coming at lists from their own perspective. And I was saying like academic, responsible to history. When I wrote Journey of the Living Dead, I was very keenly aware of wanting to maybe mention some things that I hadn't in the previous book, Zombie Mania, or try to be a little better at it culturally. And I know I still failed. Because I'm seeing things even now since doing Journey that I didn't know existed. But like, for instance, one of the things I remember I so wanted to put in that book was all the stuff about the Mexican mummy zombie movies, Mm -hmm. because I hadn't in the first one. and That's an important thing in the history. So that's important. And I also wanted to mention that when you're talking about the ways in which these lists happen, you're saying sometimes it's a responsibility to a sponsor or to something that You need to reflect because a a copy is coming out on Blu-ray. There's also the clickbait rage aspect of it where they love the idea of knowing they're going to get people angry, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like me, about about these lists because they want the engagement and they don't care about the list so much as they know they'll piss you off if they put this one at number one and we'll get the clicks and we'll get the reshares and things like that. And that happens a lot. Although for me, most of the time I look at these lists, and I still hate read most of these lists, when you get to number one, number one is usually exactly what you think it's going to be, and it's always the same write-up. Well, of course we had to do this, or you knew we were going to get this. It's like, well, maybe then don't bother, because what have you accomplished? Yeah. You know, it's useless. So...
0: It's a log tangent, none of which changes the fact Are we that still talking
1: about Friday 30th? We are. <laughs> and
0: as I was saying, none of it really changes the fact that... Friday the 13th really is still a turning point.
1: It's a turning point.
0: It's a turning point that comes from like a path that others had been traveling down. And it kind of showed studios and showed producers all the different forks that you could take. Yeah. From where that path had been.
1: Because stuff like Black Christmas and then Halloween success certainly led to Sean Cunningham saying, oh, let's do Friday the 13th. But it's Friday the 13th success that led to the burning, the Prowler, Funhouse, you know, four thousand other things, even ones I didn't know existed until recently.
0: Madman, I, I think. It, is, yeah, uh, 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 we talked about that on Doctor uh, Dead. I think that's another camp one. Yeah, Madman
1: is that the one with Galen Ross? In it? Yeah, it is. With um, a great
0: song, by the way.
1: <laughs> and um, the one that uh, there are ones that pop up on Shutter now that I've never seen from '81. Alone in the Dark, which I still haven't watched, but I bought one uh, the copy of it. Of it. <laughs>
0: we do that a lot, by the way. We're big fans
1: of physical media here in our home. But so much and uh, so much. And it all comes from Friday the 13th's success. And Friday the 13th itself, as we've already just started to talk about, is interesting in that it's not the movie that the series will become entirely. The setting is the same. The idea of get a bunch of young counselors together, usually without campers. There's only one real entry that has campers.
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: And, you know, start picking them off. And like I said, even in this case, in the first one, the pacing is not entirely there. It's a lot of character before anything really happens. Annie is really the only death early on. She's the one that's the hitchhiking to get there and mm-hmm. be the cook. And, I got uh, some things to say about <laughs> that yeah edits. well uh but it's and it also there are other tropes that it plays on that halloween already did black christmas uh, maybe not black christmas not so much but like halloween already did like the flashback the opening flashback where you get like oh here's what happened in the past mm. and in this of course we start in 1958 and i have to say we watched it a million times oh. and and of course there's kevin bacon but we'll talk more about kevin bacon We've watched it a million times, and this was the first time in a long time I really tried to watch it more intently, and like more consciously. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really struck me this time mm-hmm. is I felt like for a movie that has become so revered and is such a justifiably respected uh, launch of a franchise, that 58 beginning feels really awkward and amateurish. Uh, not the best people acting in that opening scene, it's kind of clunky. It feels to me now more like what you see in a parody version of a slasher. So, it was weird to realize, oh, the, even the opening isn't really that strong.
0: I think that there wasn't probably a lot of like a lot of good direction necessarily given to the actors in the opening flashback sequence because basically it's a lot of like late 70s people trying to like project or pretend what they think a late 50s like earnest cheerfulness is oh my god
1: in no way does that opening to feel like 1958 it really doesn't the but hairstyles I, alone
0: <laughs> well they really didn't try they with didn't try that. but i mean I, I do think basically it's a whole bunch of actors trying to like basically probably given a direction of like okay just think it's the 50s so <laughs> you know you're you're cheerful you're wholesome they're like singing like michael rowe the boat ashore like I also mean you
1: want to run off and screw so get that in there too yeah
0: So it's like, but you know, you're going to be naughty about it, but like, you're going to be 50s naughty about it. So like, you know, I think they were just trying a little too hard to be, I guess, sort of a stereotype or like what they thought the 50s were.
1: And be naughty with lip smacking, which, (laughs) by the way, is another important thing. We watched the unrated version. Yes. Which I think is the best version of the movie, but only in the sense that you get to see everything that they achieved including really what amounts to only a few seconds of extra footage on most of the kill sequences that showcase a little bit more what Tom Savini was doing. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about really, really small trims from the version most people probably are familiar with, but it's worth seeing. And
0: not only that, but they're the kind of trims where A few years later in general in movies and even within the series itself of Friday the 13th, you see more violence and more gore in the rated versions yeah. than you do in this unrated version. It's like they were just, because the, it was sort of at the start of things, they were so sensitive about it.
1: The cuts are just kind of ridiculous. It's like, you okay, you could slash your throat, but we don't want to see the blood actually pump out for like two seconds more than that. It's like, all right. And the thing is, clearly, there isn't any more to be seen. Like, what is it? I think there are two of the deaths are off camera.
0: Yeah, and they remain off camera.
1: Which- I feel like for the, and we've talked about this in the past too, the slasher fans who are really motivated more by the gore side of things, which, which is, is not that's us. its own kind of disturbing for us anyway. But it's interesting to me because I feel like that's something, it still happens, but I feel like that's something that eventually got to the point where someone making a slasher would figure, well, if we're going to kill the character, it needs to be on screen because they're going to expect to see it. Yeah, And the idea of even doing a story where some of the deaths happen off screen would be off the table after a certain point. But this isn't concerned with showing you all of it. It's not really, even with the gore effects, it's not as over the top as, like you said, even a few later installments would be. Right. It's It's kind of subdued in places. And, of course, there are a few... Big moments like the axe in the head, and, and one of Savini's trademarks, which is Kevin Bacon's death with the arrow that comes up through the fake neck and everything, mm-hmm. one of his trademark tricks. And it looks good. You know, if people are made of latex, it looks good. <laughs> you know?
0: It really does look it like, like it's Kevin Bacon's neck, I gotta say. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's remarkably well done. And maybe that's also part of it. That one of the reasons the censors kind of went to town on it is they weren't really prepared. For the level of realism in special effects that Savini was bringing to the project. That's a very good point. That that in and of itself, and it's one of the reasons he's so well regarded yeah. in terms of special effects, is that he brought so much lived experience yeah. of seeing actual injury to a world where he said, look, if you're going to show this on camera and it's going to be there, it really, shouldn't it look right?
1: And he also was very concerned about making sure blood is the right color. And obviously that evolved in his career, too. He got this job off of Dawn of the Dead, which, of course, we know famously has some great gore effects, but also cartoonishly so. And he knows that, too. Yeah. But it's when he started doing all the slasher stuff that I think he really showcased what he could do in a quote unquote real world kind of environment Mm -hmm. where the gore is not zombies or anything. It's just people dying and he knows what that's like, you know, and, and can replicate that. So, yeah, I, I
0: think that's what threw them a little. Yeah, bit.
1: you're probably right. One of the other things worth mentioning is the fact that we said Friday the 13th uh, has a rightful place in sort of the thread of history of the slashers. Mm-hmm. But of course, as we've talked about many times before, the slasher history itself is also intricately woven with the history of Italian giallo films. And Friday 13th has a direct connection to that because it and its immediate sequel directly lifted with no pretense whatsoever, if you know what you're looking at, Mm -hmm. uh, elements of, in some cases, actual shots from Bay of Blood or Twitch of the Death Nerve from 1971, which, if you want to hear us talk about it, we did in my birthday episode of Ghouls in the House a while back. And uh, you can find that with all of our other shows we were not fans.
0: We have some opinions.
1: (laughs) But regardless of that, the point is that Bay of Blood features several sequences and certain general ideas that were direct inspiration for things that you see both in Friday the 13th and most particularly in 2, where the spear through Two people having Mm -hmm. sex is is replicated exactly from Bay of Blood.
0: Yeah, you get some of the POV as well of the killer, which again is not unique to Bay of Blood, but that's really the most direct like parent to to Friday the 13th.
1: And keeping with the Italian connection, just the idea of including an exceptionally disturbing, completely unnecessary, uh, and very um, right-in-your-face death of a genuine animal where they cut the snake. Welcome to America, Snakey. You tell your friends. Which you see more of in the unrated version. It's the
0: only thing I don't need more of in the unrated yeah, version.
1: is a very Italian element, because a lot of Italian horror and thrillers included overt cruelty to animals on camera, including some of the cannibal movies, and I've never understood the fascination with doing that.
0: What did we watch recently? It was um, Rats. Yeah, rats. we were watching recently where you see somebody- We didn't see the whole
1: thing yet, so we'll talk about it one day, maybe.
0: But we watched a piece of it where it's like somebody is on fire with live rats. There was a live on rat on
1: top of his head while, while he's on fire. He's
0: doing the burn. Yeah. And we were both just looking at each other like, I cannot believe that yeah. like they're just doing this. But we say that in a way that we mean like for our sensibilities, but we can believe- that they would have done this it's a very of a time disregard for the animals involved
1: i guess is also a good place to point out since we're talking about the inappropriate inclusion of animal cruelty mm-hmm. that there are other things in this movie that don't age well cultural appropriation kind of jokes like ned our resident Oof. goofball uh dressing in a cliche uh indian chief kind of headdress and garb and mm-hmm. Sound Uh, effects and all. Sound effects and all. It's it's, unfortunate. It's not appropriate. Um, But then
0: again, you're not really supposed to like (laughs) him. Like you're not supposed to hate him, but you're also supposed to be like, "Gosh, that guy's annoying."
1: Yeah, he's annoying. And there's there's elements of that though, and some other things that are just weird. Like, I Crazy Ralph is a great character. I always feel like he should never been killed off in two, but we'll get to that when we get to. That's another thing too. When we did. doctor of the dead one of the last things we did in doctor of the dead was cover not just the scream series but all the halloween movies because certainly that was close to my heart we're going to do that or as many of them as we could anyway and then with this because this franchise has become a go-to for us we'll definitely finally get around now to talking about all the others maybe not necessarily one episode after the other ghouls in the house but now that we've sort of broken the seal we'll get to the others
0: i don't have to watch five again do i
1: no we don't have to watch. but there's stuff in this that's so goofy. So, I mean, Ralph's great character in the few moments he gets. He's the harbinger. We also <laughs> love
0: that Ralph is married. Ralph has a wife who's worried about him because his wife is concerned because Ralph he went missing again. He got his calling. Who married Ralph? Somebody didn't. We never meet her, and I would love to.
1: There, there's a Friday Thirteenth franchise. Plot hole, as they say now, for anything <laughs> that people decide is wrong.
0: Yeah, it just wasn't in the script, and they didn't do it. And people call it a plot hole. It's like, I hate look, the term
1: plot hole. He's got
0: a wife. You don't meet her. Yeah. You don't meet everybody. Not
1: everything's a plot hole. Uh, but there's that. But also, there's the goofy cop who's basically in a whole other movie. It it feels more like he's a Haddonfield cop coming back in time from Halloween Five because he's in this whole other film. And they all seem to genuinely be laughing at him. Which makes me wonder if the cast were actually just totally like enjoying his weird performance because they just
0: couldn't keep a straight face. Yeah, they
1: look delighted about him being this total ass. And there's that. And there's also for me anyway, the weird thing about how many classic golden age of Hollywood references <laughs> like like Ned does Bogart and I forget which one of them I think it's Brenda. She does or no, not
0: Brenda. It's um
1: she does Catherine Hepburn into the mirror.
0: It's Marcy who does it into the mirror.
1: But yeah, it's just weird. And I'm thinking, all right, well, it's 19. The thing is, even for 1980, well, I mean, like, I'm growing up in the 80s. I was watching Marx Brothers movies for New Year's and stuff. So we were watching old movies. But, Probably
0: on TV, they grew up with it.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking it's just so weird. Like, you, I mean, certainly <laughs> not going to have that today. And I'm wondering, like, for them to be referencing Bogart and Hepburn, I guess would be like someone today referencing characters from From Friday
0: the 13th. (laughs) That's right. Yeah.
1: So they'd be doing Bogart and Hepburn again. We're
0: talking like a 40 year gap.
1: Yeah, that's right. That is weird. Uh, But yeah, so it's a lot of goofy stuff. And like I said, the other thing that really struck me is how slowly paced a lot of it is. Mm -hmm. There's long takes in this extremely long takes including like one with um adrian king as alice like you pointed out where you could see she couldn't get the top back on on one of the canisters and so she that, found a
0: way to just kind of tip it on and put it down yeah, she can't break the scene it's a really it's a real long, long, long
1: scene and for all we know that wasn't the first take so maybe she'd been through it before but there's also the not only are there are long long takes but also, there's a lot of use of matches in this movie. There's, mm-hmm. It's a great commercial for matches. It really struck me about how quiet a lot of this movie is. And then, of course, when it's not quiet, there's great stings and musical bits by Henry Manfredini, who became the person that established the, the musical style of the Friday the 13th series. Which, to be fair, is both distinctive and memorable, and yet also very simple. He would have certain motifs, a lot of strings, a lot of like quick sounds. It's more like uh, like a soundscape more than music. And there are times where it changes through the series too. I forget which one, like you noted, there's one where he really leans into using watery sounds. That's four, and it's only like he he does it in
0: four where. It's raining a lot of that movie. They lean in a lot to the fact that he drowned. You've got.
1: But the water should run through the whole series because it's really good. It's
0: really good. And he was trying something out in four, which is interesting.
1: But uh, I mean, you get a lot of the standard stuff here that if you hear this and you know anything about the franchise, you would instantly recognize the sound of Friday the 13th and most particularly one specific sound. Now, nothing on Earth is going to convince either of us Mm-mm. about the story behind this, because any fan knows there's the whole story about how when they created the sound, it's supposed to be the words kill and ma, yeah, like Jason he, he, telling he, he, mama, her, mama. which of course fits because we see later her memory of Jason, her son, the, the Pamela Voorhees, who's the killer. Did I mention spoilers? it's Um, it's
0: friday
1: the 13th (laughs) when she's remembering her son jason who's a very special boy and he drowned and uh she's obviously created sort of a persona in her head of young jason so much so that the captions actually tip that early earlier than we're supposed to know
0: (laughs) yeah that was problematic we'll get to the captions though in a minute Um,
1: but uh she's created this persona and he's telling her, you know, "Killer mommy, killer mommy. And so there's this idea that the kill and the ma is in the music. But as also many fans know, when we do it, we usually do it as like, Ch-ch-ch. and actually I'll admit, if you listen carefully, there are times where I can almost believe it. You can almost hear it. But most of the time I think, all right, maybe because of the echo he put on it. It distorted the original intent, but to me, I would always have written it down C-H-C-H-C-H and like Mm H-A. That's what the Friday 13th sound is.
0: You see this a lot with films and also uh, no judgment really on my part to like them doing it. But this was a film that was made very quickly on a very low budget with the script that was thrown together pretty fast. And all of that means that the soundscape for the movie was also put together pretty quickly and it was easier for them after the fact, like it is for many filmmakers, to ascribe meaning to things that they didn't actually build meaning into in the moment that they were making them. And... If that works for them and it becomes part of the legend of the film and them trying to say, see, we were telling you the whole time we were projecting that that was a part of it, subliminal. It's in there. And it's really easy to say that once you've been like heralded for making a classic and like everyone loves it and they've seen it. And the love for it, I think, also comes from like two different areas. Right. You have moviegoers who were seeing it because there really wasn't anything else like it available to them at that moment in time in the theater. But then you also have the business side of it, where part of the reason more of these films got made is not necessarily because they were like, oh, this is like great storytelling or a great story to to sort of build off of out there. It's because from the business side of things, they saw how much money they made with such a small budget on a film. It's a single location. Basically they just filmed it all over the course of a short period of time in a small town at an actual camp that you can still visit on a lottery based system. I don't know if that's changed like
1: last time you saw anyway. yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know if that's changed like for pandemic reasons or anything, but basically every year you get two Fridays, the 13th in various months. And as long as it doesn't coincide with the actual campers who are Mm -hmm. like actively at this camp, I think it's a Boy Scout camp actually in New Jersey. They have a lottery system where you could sign up to get put on a list to do um, tours of the camp where you can take photos and do things. If I remember correctly, they have also a very specific set of rules about like you can't like... Basically, like dress up and do your own gore effects and stuff around the camp. Like you can take photos of yourself there, but they don't do tours and it's so much in demand that it's just sort of on a a lottery system or always has been. So it's the like small town, real place filming there. And from the business side of things, you could see that and say, Oh, we could turn, you know, 10, 20, even hundred thousand dollars into a few million easily Mm -hmm. and they just tried to replicate that using some of the same elements of that formula
1: i already brought up pamela Voorhees, and of course that's betsy palmer and as we've said many times in the past we're not a behind the scenes uh podcast but it interests um, us
0: but it's not our main focus i mean i throw
1: things in if i think it's relevant to what we're talking about it's interesting you know anybody again is a fan has certainly heard plenty about how betsy palmer thought the script was a piece of shit and you know, did it for the money. I think she had to repair her car from a car accident or something. <laughs> that's the um, that's the story that circulates. And I mean, fine. You know, the, the fact is, it also feels very much when you watch her mm-hmm. in it. She gave it her all and really establishes a great villain who's a one and done character. She
0: was playing for the back row.
1: Yeah, there's like a cameo appearance at least once. Um, but other than that, this is it because the series becomes Jason. But in this first one, it's Pamela Voorhees, and she's fantastic. She is held back until the last the act, and as soon as she shows up, she's magnetic because she's just so crazy over the top. And I guess I for whatever reason that she came up with how she did it, it works. It works perfectly for it, and she's a great villain for it and uh, has a very, very comfy-looking sweater. She's I love wearing sweater.
0: like three shirts, which she, you just noticed when we were got watching. got layers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Jason was my son, and today is his birthday.
0: Where's Mr. Christie?
1: Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again, could I? Not after what happened. Pamela Voorhees' um, motivations deserve some scrutiny, and I actually actually have a list of a few questions we had, having seen this movie many times. We had a list of questions that we really came up with this time about it. Top of the list is one that you were saying while we were watching. Okay. There's the one, I can't remember her name now, but the one who goes out to the archery range. That's,
0: that's Brenda, I believe. Okay.
1: And she hears, that's the moment in the movie, and again, we'll get back to captions. That's the moment in the movie where you actually hear a child's voice saying, help me, but we have to assume that's Pamela faking a child's voice, although it is definitely a kid's voice. Yes saying help me and the captioning helpfully tells us immediately young jason is saying help me but
0: some notes for you special edition blu-ray box set maybe rethink this
1: but she runs out into the it's raining at that point yes she runs out into the rain to find what this poor child calling out help needs and if pamela Voorhees' entire motivation is that the counselors at the time weren't paying attention and let jason drown right Why is she killing someone who is demonstrating an extraordinary level of commitment and responsibility to the safety of children by running out into the rain and endangering herself because she heard some strange kid yelling out of nowhere, help me. She's one of the good ones, right? And yet she's going to pick her off too. Her choice of killing these people is, of course, yes, we know Pamela Voorhees is crazy. You
0: can't ascribe logic to every choice but it's that's weird. being made.
1: Uh, other questions that we had is that why does the pantry in the kitchen have a lock on the inside? On
0: the inside. I had to rewind it because it was playing. the The film was playing. And I'm like, did she just lock herself into the pantry? And you're like, surely she didn't. And I was like, there is a bolt lock on the inside of the pantry. Like when you want to be alone and undisturbed with the canned peaches.
1: Well, it does. It does dovetail with an earlier moment in the film, which is when Ralph shows up in, in that same closet, that is in the pantry, and has clearly been standing there waiting for someone to open the door so that he can do his you're all doomed thing, which leads you to wonder how long was Ralph standing in that closet waiting for somebody to open the door, which then also makes me think, well, maybe Ralph one day put the lock on the door so that he could be alone in the pantry with the canned peaches whenever he wants to. It's his pantry, maybe.
0: Maybe, but I think mostly it's just a weird choice.
1: The only question I had left at this point was, and it's not much of one, but there sure are a lot of rifles in the barn at the end of the movie. This is like enough for like a militia to start a war so
0: much so that I started referring to it as the gun barn
1: yeah and it's like all right it's a camp so what do they do sharpshooting or something with older kids or but there's a lot of guns in that barn
0: well they don't do anything with the kids there since 1958 (laughs) because the place has been
1: closed so why did Christie stock the place with so many damn mm -hmm. rifles there's a lot of them
0: to his credit and for safety the ammunition was well locked up so much so that Alice
1: couldn't get to it we also see, by the way, there's a sign for the very real Tomahawk Lake that's also nearby. And who knows, maybe Crystal Lake and Tomahawk Lake are going to have some kind of gun war or something. I don't, know. I don't know. We never do find out about Tomahawk Lake in any of the later movies.
0: It's just it, the one bad lake. It's
1: like hearing about Russellville in the Halloween series. I'd like to go to Tomahawk Lake someday and find out what happened there. Did they ever hear about this stuff?
0: Is Tomahawk so, Lake the one that connects you to New York City?
1: that empties into the ocean (laughs) yeah maybe uh we'll get to that uh do you want to talk about the captioning
0: oof the captioning
1: we love leaving the cat i i've got i think we've talked about it before i still tend to find that i've gotten to a point where i feel more comfortable with captioning on movies especially if i haven't seen them before because i always feel like i'm missing something
0: and there's some stuff where it actually is very interesting or fascinating to see what they choose to caption and what they add in. So for example, in this one towards the beginning, when Annie's like hitchhiking into town and she's like walking through the town and you can very softly hear somebody's got a radio playing somewhere. The captions actually had the full text of what was being said on the radio, which we'd never really heard because it's just kind of a murmur Mm -hmm. in the background. So for that kind of stuff, it's very interesting. If, done right and there were moments in this where the captioning was less than stellar
1: this is the scream factory special edition box set by the way too which means it kind of like stands the test of time for a while and was not done with a hundred percent editorial accuracy
0: there were a few lines where they just flat out got the line wrong the what had god wrought
1: yeah Was it Brenda? Yeah. She says, what hath God wrought? And the captioning said, what has gone wrong?
0: So they didn't know that line. That was not there. And there were also some like weird choices in terms of how you describe animal noises. Oh my. Because loons call, the loons are calling, and we joked while watching if you really just want it to be absolutely like three sheets to the wind before the end of the first act, just take a drink every time the subtitles say loon's calling because they are, they are constantly a calling.
1: Frogs are croaking.
0: Frogs croaking. That makes sense. Okay. Birds are chirping. Yeah. Bugs are also chirping. The, oh,
1: okay. the bugs are chirping. The bugs are chirping.
0: Um, And you also have uh, zippers. You want to... Guess, listeners, what zippers do. That's right. They buzz. Zipper buzzing.
1: Zipper buzzing.
0: Um, (laughs) Matches. I don't know what you would personally say for matches. That's right. Clicking. Matches clicking.
1: And sizzling at one point. It did
0: sizzle. That's a little closer. A little
1: better. To what I
0: would say a match does. Clicking and sizzling. And then what I love is, uh, I don't know if you want to guess what sound it would make when someone's crinkly raincoat is making crinkly raincoat noises but obviously any of us would know to say tarp rustling mm-hmm. it is not a tarp it is a poncho <laughs> this is the special edition and it's a. we've had this happen with special editions of other things it's you know, we we jest, we make fun of it for us because we're watching the captions as sort of a supplemental. Mm-hmm. But for accessibility reasons, if you're watching the captions as your only avenue for understanding what's going on in the film. Right. You really do have a responsibility to get it right. Yeah. Like, OK, you can interpret sounds how you want to interpret them. But you have to consider sort of, are you getting all the lines correct? Are you giving something away in the captions that you shouldn't be giving away? Right. Like a child's voice being attributed more than once to young Jason. Mm -hmm. You know, like describing a tarp rustling, somebody who can't really hear what's going on is thinking, is something happening in the background? Is somebody opening up a tarp? Is something about to happen? No. Bill's just taking off his raincoat. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, you know, you have to you have to think about these things when you're putting a special edition together. And I think it's a really important member of your team to consider when you're doing these things.
1: I think you also said you had things to say about Annie. So, I mean, obviously, we've done an entire episode at this point, pretty much. But obviously, most people know the basic idea. And of course, this is going to be the first in a long line of movies where people are trying to get this camp going again. And a bunch of people, including Kevin Bacon, who's just starting his career. Did I mention Kevin
0: Bacon? He doesn't like to talk about it so much.
1: (laughs) He's not shy about it at all. No? No, no, no. He's fine with it. Oh, good. I mean, I don't remember. Maybe there was a time. Mm -hmm. But he talks about Friday the 13th. He doesn't necessarily maybe show up to every documentary or whatever. Right. He's fine with Cause that. Because I feel
0: like we we noticed particularly, because if you haven't, by the way, if you're a fan of the series, there's a, a very long documentary oh, called uh, Crystal Lake Memories. Crystal Lake Memories, yeah. Um, But both of us noticed that he was not interviewed yeah. for that. And it's like, that feels like a glaring omission. It is,
1: but I don't know why. But I mean. I guess
0: that's why I just assumed he was like I, not so into it. I
1: don't think so. I don't think he's avoided it completely, mm-hmm. but. I mean, he, he still wants to do a Tremors thing. too. I mean, he goes back to stuff that's goofy in genre. Yeah. And, um, and he also did that slasher movie recently that was very much kind of, I think, playing on his history. Uh, the, they Slash Them. They Slash Them. Yeah, we haven't mm-hmm. seen that's it. That's another summer camp movie. Um, but anyway, you getting this group together or trying to get this place together. And one of them was supposed to be this girl, Annie, who gets to sort of have her own little story at the beginning because she never gets there. She's the first one that's picked off in the present. So you said you had some thoughts about Annie.
0: She's very confusing as a character. I feel like she's the character that is the most poorly written. Mm. Because the rest of them, you can kind of understand why they might have taken a job at a summer camp, right? Like Alice is an artist taking a job at the summer camp. She's probably eventually going to teach the kids art at the camp would be my guess. And she likes the idea of building things, constructing things, nature. She's going to get a lot of chance to sketch nature out there. It'll be interesting. And then the rest of them, I think, are basically just your average, like, kid in their, like, late teens, early 20s. You know, you're talking like 19 to 25, Mm. somewhere in there, who just want an easy summer job where they can hang out in the woods and goof off and, like, Get into trouble, but also, you know, show Mm -hmm. campers a good time. I'm sure they'd all be great counselors. I had probably plenty of camp counselors who were about as responsible as they were, which is to say not very. And they all kind of make sense. You know, the three of them already know each other, like coming into that situation. They're driving up together. And if
1: I remember correctly from what I just saw a while ago, that was real they all three were already friends. Mm-hmm. So the idea was they were cast based on the idea that they already had a rapport with each other coming into it. So it really was that it was Bacon and the other two were, were mm-hmm. friends already. Yeah.
0: So it's like it, that works. And like, And then you've got Annie, who has spent her whole life apparently dreaming of being a cook at a crappy summer camp in the hills of New Jersey. Right. Uh, you're gonna do anything you can, you know, to make that dream come true.
1: You go for it, Annie.
0: You, you get it, girl. Get your dream. <laughs> but also, she's like hitchhiking the entire way. Like how far? We don't even know how far Annie has traveled to get to this camp. We right? We just
1: watched it, and we don't know where they. She they don't from. tell
0: you. No. The first time you meet Annie, she is rocking up into town yeah i
1: love that and
0: asking like how much farther it is to camp crystal lake that's your first sense of like oh something's weird at camp crystal lake because yeah. like the the whole place goes quiet to like every sort of stereotypical thing the only thing you don't get is somebody like dropping a plate <laughs> or like a glass or something right you know they're just real quiet and then somebody's like i don't know i would say about 20 miles or so and so she made it 20 miles still from mm-hmm. town who knows how far she traveled to get to that point point? and is like oh is there a bus i can get like it's your dream you want to work at this camp also you got hired to work at this camp so like there must have been a job application process mm-hmm. where you were kind of given directions on how to get there like wouldn't you think she could have just corresponded with christy and said oh if i can get to such and such a town can, can somebody come pick me, come up? Pick me up yeah because, like, I've worked at camps and things myself where things like that happen, where, like, somebody can get, they're coming in from out of town, they get to an airport and somebody's got to pick them up or, you know, they don't have a car. So the camp tries to figure out who is going to carpool with them. I've driven people back and forth from summer camp before. It's not, it's not, like, difficult logistics to figure out. But she's, like, hitchhiking the whole way. And it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. Like, I get that they wanted to have somebody on her own, on the road, like this first kill where you don't even know who she's in a car with. And, like, it could be anybody. It could be somebody from the camp. It could be somebody from town. You know, like, it could be anybody.
1: And isn't the implication also that Pamela's basically kept her dead body in her car the whole time? because we see her at the end don't we Well,
0: we say the whole time but the whole time is just it all happens over the course of a single day yeah like, unlike some of the other movies which do span time a right. little bit this is just one day
1: and as we'll deal with when we move forward the series is also interesting in the sense that based on the calculation of the time that passes the series eventually starts happening in the near future beyond when the movies are coming out like for instance six i think is 86 but it happens in 1990 I think based on friday 13th's timeline never mind we'll deal with that later it's also worth noting in our first ever Friday the 13th episode that we come at this too from very different personal experiences I have literally never in my entire life gone to a summer camp or wanted to or had to or dealt with any of that and also hate outside anyway so
0: I mean know. for the record I also hate outside
1: <laughs> but you have but you have been at summer camp.
0: Yes. Although when I worked at summer camps, I worked at summer camps that were on college campuses, so mm. I lived in dorms rather than the woods. So yeah. I mean I've been to like nature-y camp a couple of times, mm. stay in a cabin.
1: And you did frequently do Catherine Hepburn impersonations All the time. So I mean that's common. Yeah. That's that's normal.
0: Are you ready for the summer?
1: Else, we want to say about Friday (laughs) 13th. Is it clear that we really, really like it? I mean, it's we're picking a lot of the aspects of it, but the point is, it is a movie that is a classic. I think it's excellent. I don't think it's nearly as good as some of the ones that come later in its own series. Mm -hmm. I think Friday 13th achieves a certain level of real entertainment value a little ways in. And then also, when it tries to reinvent itself once or twice, does some great things. This first one's very important. It's fun. It's a pleasant experience watching it. Weird way to say, it, I guess. But but it's, it's also an enjoyable
0: environment to be in. Like you said, those long slow stretches. Where nothing's necessarily happening. It's not terrible. Though, You're in it, the woods. You're hearing nature sounds. There's bugs chirping. It all.
1: It also builds up the suspense for when something's going to happen. So yeah. it's it's not bad that it takes time, but it's also I wouldn't put it at the top of the list.
0: It's not my favorite Friday the Thirteenth. It's not even like what I would call like my favorite like horror movie or slasher movie. I actually don't think there's really all that much horror even terror in it but it's sort of an environment that we talk about a lot it's like it's nice to be back in the environment of the film
1: i do think it's important before we wrap up though to talk about one of the biggest things about it i think that we haven't yet said which is the ending Mm. and i can't remember necessarily like a lot of these things we talk about i can't remember entirely what my reaction was the first time i saw it and if i was surprised or if for instance i'd already read in fangoria that jason pops out of the lake so maybe i already knew i do remember though being at that age in the 80s seeing it on cable and always finding that ending a little unsettling
0: which was their intent
1: yeah and he's creepy looking because they did the savini created that sort of hydrocephalic head and then he's got and, like, if you see all the famous behind the scenes photos, he looks clean with the head. But of course, they dirtied him up with like algae and Yeah, he's like and everything. seaweedy. And, like, I, I get the feeling actually when I try to put myself back in that time, I think I was kind of confused by it. Like, I'm not sure what that implied because obviously he wouldn't be that age. No. He drowned in 1957, right? Because cause already 58 right. is a year after, right? So yeah, but I remember the ending being unsettling, and it's creepy. And the way it ends with her being in the hospital, and and that last thing is like, then he's still out there, and she's kind of like drifting. Maybe they have the, already
0: drugged they her. They have drugged her, drugs and, yeah.
1: But she's kind of like disconnected. So it's not even like a scared reaction. It's just like a matter of fact that he's still out there. There's a weird, dreamy nightmare-like aspect to the end of the movie, where reality itself is almost questionable, because surely that ending is not supposed to be literal, like it's not supposed to be that he really popped up, but then why did she have that in her head? Is it just because she interacted with Pamela? What's going on? And that idea of like the slight aspect of dreaminess to it is something that I feel worked well as the series continued. Friday Mm the 13th would frequently deal with a kind of weird dreaminess that I also like the way this ends with the Manfredini's big action sting and the slow motion at the end, which is going to chop Voorhees' head off, that they kind of repeat in two, but then they don't keep repeating that as a beat. And I always wish that the Friday 13th series would always end With the same music and a slow motion (laughs) sequence, it felt like a trademark that never quite got going. Mm -hmm. But that ending is really, really a powerful, like, coda to the thing.
0: I think that one of the things that gets sort of lost along the way in the later sequels is the fact that that dreamscape feeling and quality really works at the end of this one because it's an otherwise real world movie. It's just one woman who had a genuine tragedy in her life that caused her to have a real break with reality, develop a sort of like split personality slash like tunnel visioned mania to keep this camp away from children forever. And once she's been killed it sort of like doesn't change the fact that the place itself is sort of haunted Mm -hmm. like there's so much that has happened there jason drowned the counselors were killed as the cop gives you in a bit of exposition like you know, all kinds of crazy stuff goes on. I think it's uh, Enos, the truck driver, who talks about Pamela it. Pamela
1: presumably set the fires. There are fires.
0: The water was bad at one point. Like, essentially, she poisoned the water. Like, she tried, she tried murder first, and that didn't seem to work. So she was like, I'll just try sabotaging mm-hmm. the place itself. And that didn't seem to work. So she's like, I'll try more murder <laughs> this time. But it's sort of like, there's been a lot of... Tragedy and the place itself already has that sort of like cursed legend status to it, all a hundred percent thanks to the actions of Pamela Voorhees, presumably over the years.
1: It's also worth noting that one of the things a lot of people and academics write about too is the use of a woman as the villain in this one, which doesn't hold for a lot of other slashers before or after
0: or even the rest of this series, so, and
1: certainly not the rest of this one and it's an interesting thing too. be and it only just occurs to me in the moment that it's interesting where you got you have like psycho with norman having the continuing other personality of his dead mother and she's the one like quote-unquote committing the murders right and in this It's a mother who has the other personality of the dead son who is goading her on and arguably you could say is the one committing the murders. It's a reversal of Psycho. Mm -hmm. And I probably am not coming up with anything remotely new to anybody that's really delved into it. But to be perfectly honest, and I guess I have to admit it, even if it makes me sound foolish, but I literally never really thought about that. It's new to you
0: in the moment. Yeah. It's certainly worth mentioning it's fascinating yeah Yeah. so i mean it's a real place with real tragedy that has happened there and so by the time you get to the end and she's drifting and she's in the lake and you have that dreamy quality to it she is essentially now left alone with like the haunted property that's like soaked through with all this tragedy And it lends itself to that uneasy feeling of was it all Pamela Voorhees or is there something about this place? Like, is she right? Like, she's like, it's this place. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they they never should have opened it. And you have to wonder, like, in the back of your mind, did she set the fires? (laughs) Did she poison the waters? Or like, is this place Wrong. Is there well, something wrong about it?
1: Of course. As you move forward, even into the next one, those questions make a lot of sense when you realize what else is going on. By the time we get to two, we know that Jason is around.
0: Yeah, and you kind of lose some of the mysteriousness of the first one. Yeah, by it, kind of pinning it down.
1: It's worth evaluating this one entirely on its own.
0: This is essentially like an ASMR horror It in the haunted woods and it's a nice place to visit
1: thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie belitovsky and arnold t blumberg you can find natalie on threads at positively natalie and me at doctor of the dead our movies this episode were friday the 13th 1980 no but it's all right i'll take care of you i i used to work for the christie's ghouls in the house is an atv publishing production Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.
0: I got to warn you you're doomed to stay. Go. Go.